Mindfulness Mode, Episode 14. I would tell somebody new to mindfulness that to be patient and loving with themselves. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Today, I'm talking with a man who has really given back to the world, Hans Hegemann. But first, I want to thank you for the great reviews. I want to thank Dr. Sandy, the connector, Ryan L. Sink, Jody, Women Taking the Lead, And I'm going to read a couple of reviews we've received here at Mindfulness Mode. Ned.com said, The new black when it comes to business. Keep up the great work and keep this podcast coming out. Colleen Crane says, Bruce is very consistent in his focus and delivers in a very effective way. Thanks so much for the great feedback, Mindful Tribe. We'd love to hear from you too. So keep those reviews coming. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm so excited to introduce my guest today, Hans Hegemann. Hans, are you in mindfulness mode? I am in mindfulness mode and flowing. Hans is a visionary consultant for socially responsible businesses that put value on people, planet, and profits. He worked for the Baltimore Police Department doing coaching and leadership training, and he is a writer for various blogs and magazines. Also a speaker, Hans helps people tell the story of their businesses, and he helps them build and market an online and offline reputation. Hans has used mindfulness as a tool in his work communicating with people since 1992. Hans, tell us a little bit more about you and your story. Well, Bruce, it's been an interesting one. I had always wanted to be a lawyer because I was going to right the wrongs of the world. When I found out what the actual practice of law involved, I, I realized that wasn't going to happen. I eventually moved into education, where I started a few schools, actually, for underserved kids, both in Harlem and in India. And that kind of defined my life for uh, almost two decades. I moved out of those roles and became a consultant, as you indicated. And mindfulness has been a tool that I have used in each one of those stops. It's so interesting. And being in education myself, I think it must be very rewarding to look back and know that you've started schools, especially in underprivileged areas like that. Hans, when you were starting your schools, how did you use mindfulness to deal with what you were doing? Because it must have been a very challenging undertaking. It was. It was a middle school and a high school specifically, as well as a school in India. But as you can imagine, Incorporating it in India was a little bit easier because of the culture and history. Uh, But the schools I started where I I introduced mindfulness were in Harlem. And both the middle school population and the high school population were, I guess, termed at risk. These were kids who had not been successful in public schools. So I needed every possible tool that I could find out there to – get these kids focused on their work, get them focused on their lives, and to ignore some of the distractions that had led to a, a variety of different troubling situations. So in in the middle school, in the early 90s, we had kids, uh, who, essentially, there, there were 10 minutes of silence, and we had the kids focus on their breathing as, as a form of mindfulness to get them centered, to get the class at a certain starting point. In high school, it was a little more uh, formalized 
where and, and it was, I was a little scared, frankly, because I introduced transcendental meditation into the curriculum. So every child was trained in transcendental meditation. They had their mantra. And we set aside time in the day for them to meditate uh, for 20 minutes twice a day. Hans, you were way before your time. I know that a lot of schools are doing what you describe now or they're starting to. But yes. back in the 90s, that was not something that was happening very often. Hans, you've done a lot of interesting things and you've talked about your past. But tell us what you're working on right now. What I'm working on right now is trying to help small businesses that, that have those three Ps that you mentioned of people, planet, and, and profit and are focused on those social enterprises do better in their marketing. And so that's my focus. And, and, and the more I do the work, the more I realize how important small businesses are uh, to job creation, family strength, and, and, and community development. Now, have you always meditated? Has this always been a part of your life? Or tell me what part of your life you were at when this came into it. Well, what was interesting is I kind of a, an N equals one experiment in a lot of different ways in all the things that I do. And for me, I turned towards mindfulness, meditation, and breath work as something of a survival tool for myself. I had kind of played with it off and on, but when I started this middle school in particular, that's where I needed something. Uh, it was at the height of the crack epidemic in New York. And this sounds a little strange now, but back then... Um, we were at a record homicide level in the city, but one of the things we didn't allow in front of the school was drug dealing. And I, it's reasonable now, but at the time there were people who took offense to that and they took out a contract, um, on my life. And so I had had a, uh, my, my first child then, and I would sit in the room wondering if I would see her again every night before I went home. And I, I wasn't able to focus on the work. I wasn't able to do what I needed to do with regard to fundraising, teaching, any of those things. And so I turned to meditation and mindfulness as a way to, to bring me some peace so that I could just do my job. That continued when there was a period in the early 90s where there were a few things were happening. One was my first marriage was falling apart. Uh, I had a dog die. Um, one of my parents had died six months before, and I was fighting with my brother who I was running the school with over who was going to dictate the future of the school. There's some scale that indicates with all those things going on in my life, I should have been dead within minutes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but the meditation and mindfulness uh, were tools that got me through those kinds of things. Incredible. And as I hear you talk about this, I think you must have an incredible passion for kids and education and helping. Tell us about that passion and where it came from. My parents, I think, kind of instilled that in me. My father was uh, a white man from Nebraska, uh, and my mother was a black woman from uh, her family, originally from Georgia, but she lived most of her life in Chicago. And they met, fell in love, and decided that uh, my father was a Methodist minister, and they decided that the ministry was going to be working with recovering drug addicts. So he started one of the first therapeutic communities in America, and it's where we, my, me, my brother, sister, mother, and father grew up. It was a, a halfway house, a residential house for drug addicts. So we had 50 guys who had been released by the courts, Vietnam veterans, and so forth, living in dormitories below us. We had our apartment upstairs. And throughout that, I saw how my mother and father always worked with people, 
And because they believed in redemption, they believed in second chances. And my father had been a freedom rider in the South with Dr. Martin Luther King. So all of these things kind of you know, were infused in, in me and my upbringing so that I kind of really had no choice. Started off, as I mentioned, with law um, as a prosecutor, then later as a defense attorney, worked for the United States Senate. But all those things weren't getting me to the place of service that I had been raised to be in. So education and, and, and reading the studies about how middle school kids, particularly in neighborhoods in New York City like Harlem, were failing tremendously. I saw that as an opportunity to take the gifts that had been given me and try to give them back in, in a specific way. So you quit your job with the U.S. Senate yeah. and started a school in Harlem. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and it wasn't popular with a lot of people. <laughs> incredible. Incredible. Well, I, I got to hand it to you. That is really an incredible story right there. You got in there and then you thought, man, I really need to implement mindfulness. Now, I can only imagine that that could have been a huge challenge because in many of the schools I've taught, that can be a big challenge to start introducing something like that. But you were in Harlem. You were in Harlem in the 90s, and you talked about the drug situation was so huge. How did you go about suggesting and implementing and pulling this off with mindfulness? Well, you know, one of my rules in life generally, particularly in, in any place I've worked, is, is to, um, instead of asking for permission, beg for forgiveness if necessary. Right. And so I, I did what I needed to do with regard to, to my own training, both with a teacher, but also being self-taught, taking courses in visualization, hypnosis, as well as meditation and yoga. And the parents, and, and to their credit, they trusted us with their kids. And, and they were at a place where they were desperate for their kids to do better. And that's when you really saw the, these, these hardworking but poor individuals say, you know what, if you're offering the help, we trust you to provide the help in, in, in the way that you think best. And, and that took a lot of pressure off. Um, and, and it allowed us to do things like to go to northern Minnesota for winter camping and dog sledding or to go to Montana. Um, and, but, but meditation and mindfulness were a part of that trust. And, and one of the tools that we realized, okay, these kids have been in a traditional public school system here in the States and we've got to do something different, right? It's, it's that definition of insanity, right? You, you keep doing the same thing uh, over and over and expect a different result. Yes. We weren't going to do that to the extent that we could. And so breaking that pattern, and, 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 and as you know better than I do, Bruce, that, that interruption where kids need to be present is, is a tremendous break with the normal flow that had caused whatever problems was going on in these kids' lives. Right. So did you go in and say, now we're going to do mindfulness. This is what we're going to do. Or was it more like, okay, now we're going to just be quiet for a couple of minutes. I know that when I do these kinds of things, a lot of times I don't mention the word mindfulness mm -hmm. or meditation. I just go ahead and do an exercise. Is that kind of how you approached it? That is kind of how I approached it. There were, there were students who would come up afterwards and say, because they knew me well enough to know right. what's the essentially what's the intention behind this and and I would love to sit there and talk with them about that we would also have more general discussions after the kids were used to the routine uh explaining why we felt this was important so tell us about mindfulness in your personal life currently it's it it, it plays a, a really important role um one of the things that I am really big on and it, don't always adhere to, but is, is, is having a morning ritual. 
And so the temptation and, and this is where mindfulness and breath work and all this fits in perfectly, the attempt to, to defeat it. The temptation is for most of us is to go to our email to, to see who and what is calling our attention, you know, that morning or that evening or that afternoon. I've made a conscious break with that through the morning routine. So the first thing is I get up and, and, and drink 16 ounces of preferably cold water. Then I'll do a, a five minute movement practice just to get my body a little more limber. And then I'll do a combination of uh, mindfulness meditation and breath work for uh, 15 to 20 minutes. And when I do that, the rest of my day goes a lot better. When I don't, I notice. I really like talking to people about their morning routines because it it does set up the day. It does set up your, your whole life, really. And when you don't do it, man, it's it just does not seem the same. Exactly. Well, I'm, I'm sure you have a lot of examples of how mindfulness has improved your life, but was there ever a time when you thought, gee, this is not working for me? Maybe when you were working with the students. Was there ever a time when you questioned it? Oh, absolutely. I, I, there were times where, you know, <laughs> the forces of the universe <laughs> conspired to overwhelm me. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you sit there and say, well, darn it, you know, I have too many more, quote, important things to do. I don't have time for this meditation stuff right now, because after all, I'm getting angry, getting my headaches. Um, my digestion is, is, is not any good. And if meditation was supposed to do all this wonderful stuff, why do I feel like this? And I went, yeah, obviously, I was observing it from the wrong direction. But yeah, there were times in, in, in overwhelm, as you, as, and yes, as you indicated, particularly with, with students and particularly with the high school students, we're, we're both, right? You're, you're trying to raise money to keep the doors open and to say that, you know what, I'm going to set aside, in the case of transcendental meditation, two 20-minute periods or for my mindfulness practice, even for 20 minutes, there were times where I felt like, you know what, I could be writing a fundraising email or letter. I could be having a meeting with a student. I could be doing something else. Um, and that's the time when it would lag. Right, right. I want to go back to Harlem. I want to go back to that place. And Mindful Tribe, we really love hearing stories, but I'm wondering if you can share an exact story with us about a time when you were working with a student or a challenge that sticks in your mind? Well, there's one student in particular. I mean, she actually ended up living with me and my family. She had been raised by her great-grandmother uh, along with her two sisters. And after after parents who had uh, been ravaged by drugs. And this child, this young woman, um, and it was actually after school, after after she had graduated and was trying to get her life online with with uh, high school, where I had to end up visiting her at a juvenile detention facility. Um, her great grandmother was too old to to make it out there, so in effect, for these two years that she had been there, I was her only visitor. And in the very first conversation, I was able to reference our time and our, 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 the sessions, the, the quiet sessions that we had back at the school. And she had remembered those times as, as one where, you know, some of the only times where she had ever found peace. She would go back home. That didn't work out. Um, there was too much going on in her, in her home for her to find those times. But at the school, she had it. The, the ironic thing is that at this juvenile detention facility, she had nothing but time on her hands. 
And, you know, we talked about what she felt was boredom, but I chose to help her reframe it as this is a time to be with yourself, to learn about who you are, and not to be angry about the past or be scared about what's going to happen when you're out of here in the future, but just be present with yourself now. And we went through um, a, a guided mindfulness session on each of my visits. I love that. I would like to be able to reach my son in the same way. And he always says he's bored if he's not looking at a device or mm-hmm. not watching a video or something like that. And he's he's not a troubled boy or anything like that, but I just want to reach him so that I can share that same thing you've just described. Now, you went from having this school in Harlem, and then later on you became a coach with police officers in Baltimore. How did you get there? <laughs> well, during my time in Washington... I met a lot of interesting people. One of them was a former speechwriter for uh, the late Senator uh, Robert Kennedy. And he and I stayed in touch over the years. He had done some a lot of work around legislation and law enforcement when he had been down in Washington. And he had something called the police corps, which is a new way of, of training police officers. He said, look, I'm working for this new commissioner in Baltimore. I'd like for you to come and help out and, and work with the police around issues of communication, community relations, and we'll see what happens. And he had actually um, wanted to, to bring a mindfulness practice to that police department. We, <laughs> we weren't successful there, but, you know, you never know. Well, I was just going to say, you just love taking on huge challenges, don't you, Hans? <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I I find that that the windmill's not big enough to tilt at, then it's it's you know not not interesting to me. So yeah, that's <laughs> because I'm thinking mindfulness. Okay, let's go to Harlem. Let's help children who are in middle school, and let's use mindfulness to do it. Oh well, we pulled that off. Let's go to the police department in Baltimore and and get them to buy into the whole idea of mindfulness. Well, and Bruce, th- think about it too. If, 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 and, and again, it's it's an incredibly hard sell, and and, and right. maybe will never happen at any major police department. Sure. But but if it if it if it was instituted, and even if the whole force and they won't embrace it because people join policing for different reasons. But for those people who join for the best reasons, I think they could be made or helped to understand that when they're engaging in in a situation with a citizen, that taking that time to breathe feel where they are, that, that everything that informs their past about who this person who may be different from them is or worried about what could happen in the future, not only keeps them safer, but it also keeps the citizens safer. And, and you know, it's, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a dream of mine, but maybe one of these days. Well, I think the day is now. Because, oh, absolutely. I yes. mean, let's face it, in the media, we're hearing about mindfulness when it relates to education. We're hearing about mindfulness in a lot of different areas. And we're also hearing that there are some challenges and some problems in police departments. Absolutely. And so to me, this is the time. We've, we've really come a long way. We're okay to talk about mindfulness now. Well, let's move on and let's just get people really understanding the benefits of mindfulness. So yep. way to go for bringing it to the police officers and to the kids in Harlem. Thank you. I want to talk about discipline, and you've touched on it already. Some of us here in Mindful Tribe, we have that challenge of sticking with it, like you described with your morning routine. Do you have anything else you can add about how we can apply discipline to our life and keep that mindfulness piece flowing? 
Well, I think one of the challenges is that we we end up beating ourselves up if we're not able to stick to a practice. And in the back of our minds, to many of us, it indicates that we somehow lack self-discipline. And so we internally shrug our shoulders, throw our hands up and say, well, you know, that's not for me. What's helped me in the past when I've sometimes been in that place myself is to chunk things down and say, you know what? Five minutes of just sitting here, don't even worry about your breathing. If thoughts come up, the only thing I'm going to ask of myself is not to judge those thoughts. But if I sit here for five minutes and breathe and feel the chair and the atmosphere and the air in the room and keep my forehead cool, my stomach warm, then after those five minutes, invariably, I'm feeling better. The next morning, I can convince myself that, you know what, maybe it's six minutes. And when I break it into those small chunks, I'm more able, readily able to see the benefits, and then I can get back to my practice. And I also have conversations with myself about whether beating myself up for, for not being, quote, as disciplined as I want to be has been useful or, or, or harmful. Well, that's really helpful. I think that's really helpful for us to get discipline in our lives. Now, you may know that I've worked in bullying prevention for yes. over a decade. Yes. And I'm wondering if you have a story about bullying, someone who was bullied or someone who was a bully did this behavior that you can share with us. One of the things that we did in our high school was um, we, we did a lot of trips. We did service trips to Nicaragua, Ghana, Senegal. Um, and, and we also did a, um, a week-long survival course in, in Utah. And one of the students who went on this trip had been a victim of bullying at his old school. And it was always touch and go as to whether we would be able to keep him in our school. And it was over um, his, his sexual identity. He was gay and had been bullied for that. And being in the Utah wilderness was healing in many ways, but it also caused a sense of overwhelm in him as we sat down at a campfire one night. And he talked about how he hated his life how he wasn't sure what he was going to do about that. And, and, and to me, that scared me because I knew what that might mean. And that while the school had been helpful, he just didn't think it was going to be helpful enough. And I needed to get him to a place where he could reflect on actually all the wonderful things that were going on in that moment in the Utah wilderness. So we meditated together. And, and in that case, because the, the, the framework that we had was the TM, we sat there and we each silently recited our mantras. And after that 20 minutes, we were able to have a much better conversation. And he was able to do things like, which he had refused to do before the session, look up and see the stars, feel the wind on his face, smell how clean the air was, and not compare it to anything other than this is where he was now. And coming away from that, he indicated to me on, on return to the school that, that that experience gave him more of a will to carry on and to find his place. Hans, I just love that story. So Mindful Tribe, as you listen to this, just listen to how Hans was able to really implement the whole ideas of mindfulness and how he was able to just reach that student at that time and probably change his life for the better right there at that place and time. So that's an awesome story. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hans, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. So we just need short 30-second answers. That's perfect. Here's the first one. Who's one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? 
In person is a guy named David Swenson, who is a famous Ashtanga yoga teacher, because he indicated that movement is also a tremendously powerful form of mindfulness. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Hans? I am not on automatic pilot as much through the the, the practice of mindfulness. And it, it's, it's not that I'm always centered, but when I find myself off-center, I get back to center a lot faster. Tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness practice. I've added breath work over the last several years to my practice in, in many respects for, for health reasons. Um, my parents, my mother had Parkinson's, my father had an aneurysm when he was 51. I'm now 57. And when I looked into the research and the power of breath, both to center me, but also to, to bring health to, through the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic nervous system and so forth, breath work has become incredibly important. If you could recommend a book on mindfulness, what would it be? It would probably be, uh, the book is, I think, Mindfulness for Beginners by John Kabat-Zinn. Can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? There are a couple. One, I think, is Headspace. And I am blanking on the other one, and I will go back and forth. The other I use is our, our, our binaural beats uh, so that I don't have to focus on the guided part when I don't want to. Uh, but those are also helpful as well, The different, and there are different apps that, that use those binaural beats. Thanks, Hans. What advice would you give a person who is new to mindfulness or someone who would like to start using it in their life? I would tell somebody new to mindfulness that to be patient and loving with themselves and that a large part of mindfulness is letting go of the way they've done business with themselves in the past. And they can find mindfulness through paying attention to their breath. They can find it when they eat. They can find it in exercise. They can find it in writing a letter. And even in small five-minute chunks, they're going to benefit. Great. Hans, it's been a pleasure to spend this time with you today, and I'm certainly inspired by your fascinating life and all the amazing things you've done. Do you have one last story about how mindfulness has helped you in your life maybe achieve focus? There's a farm. We've moved out of the city uh, over the past year or so, and we were trying to get to learn the neighbors, and and, and one of the neighbors is a farm, and, and, and this is a woman who started the farm and it's a fourth generation farm and it's struggling. And I was trying to figure out a way to help her. And I, my brain was scrambling, trying to come up with ideas. But it wasn't until I had spent a period over a period of a week focusing more on my mindfulness practice with slightly longer sessions that I came up with a crowdfunding campaign uh, and the structure and outline of it. And it came as a result of the mindfulness and not trying as hard that I think will help her save her farm. Excellent. I find that too. Sometimes you try too hard and you just have to allow the ideas to come and yes. that can make a, a huge difference. Yes. So how can we contact you? How can Mindful Tribe reach you in order to learn more about you or to contact you? Uh, the best way is just to send me an e email and I would love to speak with anybody and it's Hans, H-A-N-S, at HansHageman.com. So H-A-N-S-H-A-G-E-M-A-N.com. And then I have a website, um, HansHageman.com, and there'll be uh, some other things coming out, but HansHageman.com or that e email address are the best. Well, I want to thank you again, Hans, for joining us here on Mindfulness Mode, wishing you the very best. 
You take care. You take care, and thank you for caring about my story, Bruce. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. In appreciation, I'll mention you at the top of an upcoming show. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.